This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. If there were reason for these miseries, then into limits could I bind my woe. When heaven doth weep, doth not the earth o'erflow? If the wind's rage doth not the sea wax mad, threatening the welkin with his big swollen face, and wilt thou have a reason for this coil? I am the sea. Hark how her sighs do blow. She the weeping welkin, I the earth. Then must my seas be moved with her sighs, then must my earth with her continual tears become a deluge, o'erflowed and drowned. For why my bowels cannot hide her woes, but like a drunkard must I vomit them. Then give me leave, for losers will have leave to ease their stomachs with their bitter tongues. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Titus Andronicus, Act 3, Scene 1, read by our guest this week. She is an award-winning actor, writer and scholar and director of the erstwhile Centre for Theatre and Performance at Monash University. She's also taught at Cambridge, Leeds, Melbourne and La Trobe Universities. She has extensive theatre experience in the UK, including with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Theatre Cluid in North Wales and the Chichester Festival Theatre. Back in Australia for Belle Shakespeare, she's appeared in King Lear and in the title role of Titus Andronicus. Her other theatre credits include Macbeth for the MTC and numerous productions with Malthouse, Belvoir and Red Stitch. On TV, she's been on The Bill, Casualty and Red Dwarf, among others. Some of her numerous awards include a Green Room Award for Outstanding Performer and one for New Writing, a Manchester Evening News Award for Best Actress and Victorian and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. It is my great pleasure to welcome Jane Montgomery Griffiths. Jane, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Now, Jane, Titus Andronicus, this is obviously a role that is close to your heart. Uh, Were you interested in the play and in the role before you played it? No, no, not at all. Right. Um, And it was about two years before... um, before the production when I bumped into Adina Jacobs, who was the director, mm. and she just said very casually, ah, oh, I was just thinking about Titus Andronicus, you'd be good. <laughs> and, that, and I just poo-pooed it. I mean, this is crazy. How could I do this? Um, but Adina is an extraordinary director for the Indeed. way that she looks so uniquely at a text. And mm. um, so when she said it, you know, I thought, well, why not? I mean, funnily enough, when I remember the, the offer came from Belle, um, I was actually on holiday with my kids in Norway. Right. And the offer came through and I just thought, I assumed it was for Tamara. Um, oh, I, I see, just, yeah. You know, so <laughs> it was a bit of a shock. You know, I think it was about two days later I realised, oh, no, it's for Titus. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a revelation really because women um, of a certain age like me mm. uh, rarely get to cut our teeth on 
parts of that size and complexity. Yes. Um, and it was it was an absolute ball to play, I have to say. Um, it's it's much derided as a play, and I think that that's right. very unfair because I I disagree with a lot of the critics and scholars who say that the verse is pretty dodge. You know, right. He could right. do better. Mm-hmm. I think there's some wonderful bits in it. Yes. Um, as witnessed by the speech I've just done, which is so clever. Now the speech you've just done, which is from Act Three, it's such a, an extraordinarily heart-wrenching, powerful speech. Can you tell us what's just happened? What has Titus just found out? Oh, my golly, so much. Uh, (laughs) So he has just found out that his two... He had 25 sons and most of them died in the wars. Mm. He came back with a handful... Two of those sons have been falsely accused of murder and have Mm. been carted off potentially for execution. In fact, they are executed later. His other son has been exiled. And then to cap it all, he's just seen his daughter who has been brutally raped and had her hands and her tongue cut out. Uh, What Mm. I think is so fascinating about this speech is that we would imagine if somebody um, comes across such, such horror... There is no way they can find language for this. Yes. You, know, you would be screaming, fainting, yes. uh, vomiting. And yet Shakespeare gives us language mm. uh, and incredibly logical language. Titus's brother, just before this speech, says, let reason govern your lament. Yeah, right. And yeah. Titus replies with this extraordinary piece of antithetical logic that makes complete sense. Yeah. So the actor, of course, you can rail, you can weep and gnash your teeth, but Shakespeare gives us a very, very different view of grief, Mm. which is about analysis and letting the language speak. And that's the sort of thing that for an actor is a real challenge, not because of the complexities of speaking verse, but because it goes against everything that you think from the uh, naturalistic uh, tradition of acting. Sure. And that's one of the reasons that I love it. Because there's no way I on stage could convey the pain or grief of somebody really experiencing that, but the words do it for you. The words do it for you. I love that. And and we see this again and again um, in Shakespeare that grief, just as love does, grief gives, gives characters a vocabulary. Mm. Uh, we see it with Juliet when R- Romeo's banished. We see it with Constance in King John uh, extraordinarily when the cardinal uh, is trying to gaslight her and tell her, well, you're just mad. And she has this beautiful speech about grief. And I think uh, that that's here as well. You don't want to gild the lily by ranting and raving. We just need to hear the words, right? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. When I've taught Shakespeare to my students, I've always said, look at the verse as a safety net, not a straitjacket. And mm. if you see it like that, that the verse, the language supports you, that we shouldn't be scared of you know, subclauses or um, uh, parentheses or antitheses, that actually that's what conveys the entire perceptual framework of the characters of the world. It's the way mm. they look at the world. And so that way, yeah, the acting does it for you. Uh, yeah. it's, and it's, it's a, just such a privilege to get your mouth around language like that on stage. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And the imagery in this speech obviously is a lot about storms and and about the sea and the earth and the heavens, everything in existence uh, storming and raging. But 
the the language itself is so clear and and some of the rhetorical devices that he uses are are quite simple this repetition then must my sea be moved then must my earth he's in control of the language mm. here that's right that's right and it's actually something that titus has throughout just shortly after that speech um so God, Titus is having a really bad day. Um, God. So Titus was, to- oh, I forgot about the hand. He's just had his hand cut off. He's her own hand, of course. He's had yes. his own hand. Mm-hmm, hand. Mm-hmm. So he was told by the emperor that if he agreed to have his hand cut off, then that would be ransom for his two sons. Right. So about two, three minutes after this speech, a messenger comes holding the heads of his son. So right. you know, we've got so Titus. So it was a lie. Yeah, it was a lie. You've mm. got Titus with no hands, with two dead sons. In fact, holding their heads as he can with one hand. <laughs> um, his daughter brutalized. His son exiled. And his brother, who up until this point has been the epitome of stoicism and and calm, says to him, now is the time to rage. Why art thou silent? Right. And Titus just replies, "Um, why, man, I have not another tear to weep. I love that. I love it because it confounds the expectations and it just means that Titus is put onto a different plane and throughout the rest of the play, there is some academic debate, does Titus become mad or not? For an actor, it's a completely redundant question yes. because you've got to yeah. be in the moment and you've got to right. believe what Titus says. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the course of the play, the remainder of the play, when he does some appalling things, you know, at the end he finds the rapists of his daughter and he kills them and bakes them up in a pie and gives it to their mother. Mm. His language is so calm. Yes. And it's the calmness which is utterly chilling. Yeah, oh, that's Hark Villains. Yeah, Hark Villains. I will grind your bones to dust. Yeah, that's right. If you rant and rave and and storm, then you know no better than bottom playing Mm. Pyramus. Now, Adina's production of Titus Andronicus was an extraordinary visual feast. She kind of conceived it as a series of nightmares and the set would change to embody each one of these nightmares as the play went on. However, the text itself... Uh, it was obviously cut down, but it was kind of largely intact. It was in order. You didn't mess around too much with it. What was that dramaturgical process of of dealing with a text with such a visual director? For an actor, mm. it can be a little confusing. Um, Adina, I've worked with Adina many times before, and she works very much in mm. terms of affect. That's with an A, not an E. She wants the audience to feel rather sure, than necessarily sure. intellectualize what's happening. So um, we we kind of discussed the nature of the text, dramaturgy and characterization uh, in terms of Titus being the only character, pretty much the only character. Mm. Um, everybody else sort of um, circles around him as a nightmare. Yes. Um, so that probably lent to some characterizational challenges for some of the other actors because rather than have the characterizational through line mm. that most actors want, the actors actually had to just throw them into a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and, of course, what's interesting about a play like this is that it's contentious however it's done. Of course. To be done in this incredibly affective, sensory way, which was about feeling rather than narrative, mm. could also be contentious and confusing. Uh, but Adina's entire impetus for this is to make people feel fear, feel and fear the nightmare of the whole situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
and very, very different from some of the recent productions in the UK, for instance, one with the RSC, one at the Globe Theatre, where there used to be a tally. Um, the actors used to have tallies of how many people fainted oh, in the during that show. Right. Yeah. Um, very naturalistic. We, we, you know, you have you have a very gruesome cutting off of the hand, an incredibly right. gruesome rape scene. Mm. Adina didn't want any to, anything to do with that because she truly believed that to show the rape, for instance, it's just meretricious. It's it's completely. Um, it's 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 almost pornographic. Yeah, it's it fetishizes those scenes in a way, doesn't it? It fetishizes right. the violence and the sexual violence. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was you know an interesting challenge. Uh, at least half of the production was created through improvisation, less yeah. so from me because I had my lines. Mm. Um, and so it was a very very collaborative process for the entire cast. But I could also see how it's a process that for somebody who wasn't used to Adina's way of working could be a little um, um, discombobulating, yes. shall we say. But Adina's very good at bringing together people that she knows can work in this way. Mm. Um, and so it was a fascinating process. Now, you worked with a couple of children in that production as well, um, some young performers uh, who were absolutely brilliant and extraordinary. What was that experience like? Oh, they were amazing. Absolutely incredible. The first thing, obviously, to say is given the nature of this play, um, safety was paramount, yeah. that they felt emotionally safe, intellectually safe and physically safe as well. So um, we really, really um, pulled out all stops to make it a completely safe environment mm. when everyone can be vulnerable. Uh, I'm a mum, you know, mm. I've got I, kids the same age as as um, those three. Mm. So I, I became a slightly mama bear yeah. to them. <laughs> um, and also with my other hat on, I'm a teacher. So uh, mm. particularly one of the kids just was a sponge you know every every lunchtime she'd ask me to teach her more about verse speaking oh, or acting yeah. or stuff like that um Brilliant. and they were just amazing and i have to say that the three of them so i'm originally i was an ancient greek scholar and i've done a fair bit of acting and directing in ancient greek mm. and that's my warm-up because the um the vowel and consonant combinations in ancient greek they're better than any tongue twister wow. they really are yeah. And the kids all wanted to learn it. Yeah, so by the end of the show, they could speak at least 15 lines of ancient Greek perfectly. How fantastic. Jane, oh, no, isn't that great? Jane, I just want to put you on the spot for a moment. Can you give us one or two lines in ancient Greek? I just want to hear what those vowels sound like. <laughs> Fantastic. Where's that from? Where's that from? <laughs> That's from Sophocles Electra. Brilliant. Jane, Titus Andronicus uh, obviously is, is only the latest uh, Shakespeare production that you've been a part of. But where did it all start for you? Do you remember the moment when Shakespeare really sparked for you as a, as a kid? Oh yeah, and, and actually it's very closely connected to Greek tragedy because mm. I, I was a really um, daggy nerdy kid, as you could probably <laughs> I, imagine. I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I was I was a bit bullied at school. But I, I found out that in our second year, um, uh, second year um, what would it be, uh, grade seven, mm. grade seven just joined the big school and we had a, a, a terrific English teacher who wanted us to do The Tempest, mm. which is quite ambitious when you're 12. Yeah. Um, and he cast me as Caliban. And I made people laugh. 
Wow. And suddenly the bullies, who had been really unpleasant to me, shut up for a bit. <laughs> so that was one thing. And right. I thought, okay, I can do this. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, I, I, I can do this stuff. But then when I was 14, I read Sophocles' Electra mm. for the first time, and it just blew me away. And there and then I thought, okay, I've got to learn ancient Greek because I've got to understand this play, but also I've got to become an actress because I've got to act this part. And once that had taken root in me, mm. that was it. And that's when Shakespeare came. So I, I was really lucky. I lived outside London. So from about the age of 15 onwards, most I, I saw everything, right. everything that the RSC did, yeah. um, most of what the National Theatre did. By the time I was 16, my parents would let me go to the youth hostel in Stratford-upon-Avon, mm -hmm. and I'd stay there for about three or four days, and again, I would see everything Brilliant. the RSC did. Mm. Matinee and evening show, standing at the back of the Stratford yeah. Memorial Theatre. <laughs> I think the tickets were £5 right. if you wanted to stand there. So, um, And it was huge at the time, that theatre. I mean, they've, they've actually reduced it in size just recently. But it was, oh, it yeah, was it was massive. massive. It was massive. And I saw some amazing performances. I remember very vividly Derek Jacobi's Prospero. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I sat there and I, I heard him say, the wronged Duke of Milan Prospero. And then the next day we were in school. Now we're, I'm in the sixth form. I'm grade 11 and we're studying the Tempest properly mm. for our equivalent of HSCs. And we come to that passage and I say, the, um, I am the wrong Duke of Milan Prospero. My English teacher, different one this time, Mrs. Sanderson. <laughs> she says, oh, oh it's Milan. Yeah. It's Milan. <laughs> and so I said, the wrong Duke of Milan. I said, N -n -n, it doesn't. What about the verse? Yeah. And mm. that's when um, I started to get really interested in what the verse did. Right. And I was also very lucky as a teenager, John Barton's series for Channel 4 playing, playing Shakespeare, Shakespeare, which I think yeah. was mm. 1984, mm. 1985. It came on the TV and I became obsessed with it. Yeah. Absolutely obsessed. Yeah. Um, so... That was a great training. And indeed, when I when I was at Cambridge, I, I was taught a bit by John Barton and I got to know him later when I was an academic. Um, so that was a real privilege because the man, you know, the the series now can seem a bit, um, oh, well, it's very 80s. Oh, sure. Yeah. Ian McKellen sitting around smoking. Oh, and <laughs> All the smoking on stage. That's right. And a lot of what I might think now is bad verse speaking because it's all about the voice beautiful. Right. But at the same time, gosh, learnt a lot. Mm -hmm. And John Barton was a very, very influential man. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, and obviously you decided to become an actor, but also a scholar. And so so these two sides of your character have continued on through your life. And and this is quite rare, and often we, we uh, see some conflict between scholars uh, of the classics and practitioners. How do you marry these two sides of yourself? I never intended to be a scholar. Mm. You know, I went I went to Cambridge and I studied classics and I spent all of Cambridge acting. Yeah. Um yeah. and was really lucky because I remember that, that it was the my final week at Cambridge. I just got my results. I got just got a place at Rada and I got this letter shoved through my pigeonhole because mm. you know it's the day before days before internet or mobile phones offering me a years long gig professional gig agent equity card all of that so for the first 10 years of my career I was I was just an actor yeah, yeah. and occasionally I directed I became the associate director at a theater in Yorkshire but it was only when I moved to Australia I remember arriving knowing nobody mm. apart from my partner mm. 
and thinking, what am I going to do? I, I have no contacts in acting. I have no idea how to get into the theatre. So I did a PhD simply because I couldn't think what else okay. to do. <laughs> right. Um, and, <laughs> you know, suddenly I find that I've, I've been given a job as the head of classics mm. at Monash and then a job as the head of theatre at Monash and it was completely, completely accidental. So that's one of the reasons that I think that academia and acting aren't incompatible for me because, to be really honest, I've never taken academia seriously. Okay, <laughs> okay. You know, I'm bright. I became, a, I, I was eventually promoted to professor. You know, I've done all of the hoop jumping that academics do. Mm. But there's so much of me that just thinks, can we stop writing about this stuff and just do it? <laughs> do you find yourself in conflict with other academics because of that point of view? Uh, mostly classicists, actually. Right. I think most Shakespeare scholars are pretty much okay understanding the uh, the importance, the validation of, of uh, theatre practice. Mm. But um, if you speak to a load of ancient Greek philologists, which I have spent probably too much of my life doing, <laughs> you might well find that they, they have absolutely no idea of why anybody would stage these things and more to the point why anybody would go to watch them when you can just read the text. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today, Jane Montgomery Griffiths. Now, Jane, another Shakespeare play that is very close to your heart is King Lear. And and I should I should say that uh, you and I have just spent four blissful weeks uh, <laughs> immersed in Shakespeare with Peter Evans, the artistic director of Bell Shakespeare, and a group of wonderful actors, including Robert Menzies, Hazem Shamus, uh, Harriet Gordon-Anderson. And we've just been reading and talking about Shakespeare for, for four weeks. We've got through all the Henry VI plays. Uh, we looked at the Scottish play. We looked at Timon of Athens, Henry V, uh, and also King Lear. And here's a play that I think it's Bloom, Harold Bloom, who said, look, this one's unplayable. You just got to read it on the page. What's your response to that? I have a lot of things I yes. could say to Harold Bloom. <laughs> May he rest in peace. <laughs> um, for, the, uh, for those of you who don't know his work, he's, I mean, incredibly influential, but he's also a dreadful mm. sexist. And he is completely indicative of, I think, something that we should all try to move against, which is the hegemony of white cis old men writing about white right. cis men. And uh, I mean, his his idea of what the canon of literature is, is is pretty shameful for us now. Well, it's interesting, you know, hearing about that comment uh, on the back of all of these classicists who don't think there's any point in doing yes. plays. Of course, there is no one way to do this play. It is so multi-layered. Yes. It is so rich and strange. Mm. Um, but doesn't mean to say we shouldn't try. Mm. And of course, every interpretation is going to be different. Um, I mean, I remember as a teenager seeing Anthony Hopkins at the National Theatre, uh, seeing Brian Cox in Deborah Warner's production at, actually, that was the National too. Um, it's, it's a bit hit and miss. Yeah. You know, sure, sometimes sure. Uh, you, you, you get it, sometimes you don't. So what, thinking back to Hopkins' performance when he was probably only in his 50s, mm. late 50s maybe, mm. and the recent film that he did with Richard Eyre of it. Oh, yeah. I know that my memory is hazy from the 80s, but pretty different in terms of my memory. Um, there's always something that you can find. And one of the things that I found really interesting about doing King Lear with Bell, so this was 10 years ago, this was 2010, mm. and I was playing Goneril, yeah. um, and John Bell was playing Lear uh, for the third time, actually, was 
the discoveries I made about the character that aren't normally aren't overtly um, assumed. Mm. So everybody tends to think that Goneril and Regan are the wicked sisters. Yes, you know yeah. it's a it's a fairy tale where they are persecuting the poor Cinderella who's Cordelia. Yes, actually look at the text. Mm. There is no evidence for that at all. Um, and Goneril has she, she, yeah, she's a pretty sympathetic character. Up until Act Four, until suddenly she's not, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and then it's as though the the freedom that she has from her father has suddenly unleashed this monster, right. this wolf. Mm -hmm. But what causes somebody to be like that? It's it's usually the repression of certain emotions, right. and there are so many clues in the text about how um, abused she has been by Leah um, in terms of certainly in terms of language. That's very overt. I think she's. She has an awful lot of justification until she decides to kill her husband and her sister yes. and have an affair. <laughs> and, you know, that then she maybe gets it goes a bit too far. That's right. But um, one of my enduring memories of that production, Marion Potts's production, and that's 10 or 11 years ago now, uh, is when you were receiving the insults from Leah as Goneril and just watching you you weep that with the pain of Leah cursing you and saying, I hope your children are, what, what does he say? I hope your children. I hope you never have children, and if you do, um, that that they destroy your life, and and realizing that that Goneril is blameless at that point. All she wants is for him not to to create a ruckus and and destroy the house. Yeah, I mean, he's he's he's, he's pretty OTT. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of the. I mean, in, in, in as far as my knowledge of Shakespeare is, uh, it is one of the most vicious yes. attacks. Mm. Um, it is irredeemably awful yeah. and completely unnecessary. Mm. Uh, and how can a daughter listen to this without an explosion of pain? Especially if, as, as I played, um, or rather in my mind, I had imagined she'd had multiple miscarriages right. and, and couldn't have a child. Mm, mm. And um, yeah, it, it was simply appalling. And it used to, those, I do remember that moment of listening to them. Th those tears came automatically there was no acting required right, yeah. because you just listen to the text mm. and it goes yeah. um and it still affected me after about 120 performances yeah. yeah and even last week reading king lear in our development workshop mm. i had that free son of thinking oh here we go yeah. <laughs> it's those words again is there anything new that you discovered about lear from us just reading it around the table not having been with it for the last 10 years Yes, absolutely. The revelation was when we started talking about gendered roles. Yes. And this is something that all theatre companies need to take very seriously, but also be very uh, incisive and acute about. Um, obviously, there is a massive imbalance in the number of roles for women and for men mm. in Shakespeare. And King Lear, well, there are only three women. So for a company such as Bell, I think it's it's wonderful that um, you are committed to trying to have equal casts mm. of men and women. Mm. There are some plays where it becomes really difficult because the toxic masculinity of that culture is incredibly significant. Right. But in talking about Leah, we started to brainstorm what would happen if Edgar was played by a woman, yes. like, like Titus, still a man, mm -hmm. but a female body playing that part. Um if that were Gloucester and Edgar, yeah. then suddenly you have this resonance about parenthood as well as about being a father. Right. Because there there's no mother in this play. Yeah, or in many of Shakespeare's plays, in fact. No, yeah. no. So um, it 
became really interesting just to imagine what would happen if you had a female Gloucester yes. saying those lines as a man. Mm. But what happens when a female figure with a male pronoun is joking about how his bastard son was begot, uh, is trying to look after the king, is being blinded, is sent into abject exile. Mm. Um it has really interesting resonances and resonances with Cordelia and with Leah. Um, so that was that was quite a fascinating discussion. And I'm thinking, gosh, that would that would be a good part. Yeah, <laughs> Gloucester <laughs> sure would. You talk sometimes about queering the text, Jane. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a really misunderstood term. Uh, to queer a text, it has nothing to do with homosexuality. Yeah. Really important to say that. What it has to do is it shakes up, subverts, discombobulates. So you think you know what a text is, but uh, for instance, for instance, Titus. If you have a female body, and particularly by the end of the play, when I was naked, um, a naked female middle-aged body mm. where gravity has hit as has cellulite oh. everything you think about this image of titus is shaken up mm. and resonances and connotations start to reverberate through whether you're aware of it or not yeah. and that's what can be so exciting about queering if it's done badly yeah it, it just manages to throw the baby out with the bathwater. right right and i have been in productions where i think it hasn't been done that well maybe but yeah. to to look at the possibility of queering a Shakespeare play now when we think we know these texts so well it's really interesting and very promising now one other thing Jane you were talking about during our workshop was that you are a receptionist rather than an intentionalist can you tell me the difference between those two what does that mean to you Sure. Well, an intentionalist is somebody, usually a scholar, who thinks if you can understand what the author meant, right. you can understand the text. Mm. Um, there's an awful lot of that in classics, less so now, but with people saying, so a Sophocles would have meant this. Right, yes. <laughs> and you want to say, mate, How do you look, know? <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's 2,500 years ago, but also <laughs> he wrote over 130 plays and we've only got seven of mm, them. So on mm. the basis of that, you know, mm. similarly with Shakespeare. And we see it with some audiences too when they'll say, yes, but what did Shakespeare want? What did Shakespeare mean? Mm, mm. Why can't you do it in proper costumes? Oh, yes, yes, like of course. And all of that goes back to what was in the 20th century called the intentional fallacy. Right. That basically knowing what the author intended does not help understanding. And also, how do we know what the author intended? Yes. Right. Now, a receptionist like me is somebody who believes that meaning is created at the point of reception. Mm. So... Think looking back to King Lear. Yes, Harold Bloom might want to sit in front of his roaring log fire with a, a, a single malt reading it. That's just one form of meaning creation, mm. because you put John Bell on stage and the audience is going to get something else. You put Glenda Jackson on stage as King mm. Lear or Robin Nevin as Queen Lear, mm. then meaning is going to be differently created. Right. And I really like that because there is a reduction. There is a um, 
I'm just trying to think of the English for it. The phrase in Latin is reductio ad absurdum, which is when you can push something to absurd limits. So the ridiculous end point of this is there is no such thing as meaning. I see, yes. Everything is equally Mm. valid. Mm. There's no such thing as right or wrong. But if you can apply a little bit of common sense to it, it often yields really interesting results. And also, I think, frees you from, especially in Shakespeare production as a Shakespeare director, having to get it right. It yes, frees you from yes. ha- having to get the ultimate representation of this play. Of course, the, this is why they've been going for so long uh, and is popular for so long is because there are so many different interpretations, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't understand how any director can think, right, I've done that. That was good. That was perfect. That was my interpretation. Because even a few years later, that director will be a different person. Yes. And he put together a different group of people and something different is going to happen. Mm, yeah. uh, and that's why it's so interesting to revisit a play that you've done uh, in a different production. Um, you know, it's great, for instance, having Rob Menzies in the room over the last four weeks who's pretty much knocked off all the Shakespeare yes. roles and has been in many different productions mm. of the same play over many different decades. Yeah. Um, it gives an entirely new sense of the possibilities for meaning creation. During those four weeks, uh, I mentioned Timon of Athens, and it is a play that's very, very rarely done. There was a, a famous production of it with Simon Russell Beale in 2012 uh, at the National Theatre. Is that a play, after reading it, is that a play that you think merits a production in this day and age? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I actually hadn't read it before. Mm. I'd seen it uh, at the Young Vic back in the 80s, right. and I'd watched the Jonathan Price um Uh, production for the BBC Shakespeare's. Mm. Um, So I vaguely knew it, but I was really fascinated by what came from it. And it's sort of a play where nothing happens apart from a guy loses his money and gets, becomes a misanthropist because none of his friends, his so-called friends will help help him out. Mm. And he ends up cursing. And you think that's the entire plot trajectory of this play. (laughs) There is a subplot, but it's almost incomprehensible because there are no names and, you know, who, who cares? Um, <laughs> it, well, in the 80s when I saw it, it was incredibly pertinent for Thatcher's Britain. Mm. Uh, and it was very much set in Thatcher's Britain with the shoulder pads and all of the Hooray Henrys from the city banks drinking champagne. Yeah. Um, and it, it meant something then. Mm. Now I think in this confused world where we are struggling to work out where we fit and what's going to happen Mm, next mm. and politics has gone crazy and we're all in disarray as a society i think that it could be really powerful really powerful yeah and and i mean it looks at the the power of money uh, but also the fact that everything's a commodity everything can be bought and sold including friendship and influence of course yeah, and because of that, it's 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 pretty heartbreaking. Uh, we had discussions whether Shakespeare was a cynic. Yes. Of course, this is when you get into the intentionalism. Um, <laughs> but it's an incredibly cynical play, whether Shakespeare was or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that cynicism is strangely satisfying. Right. And perhaps even more cynical than King Lear. No, 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 nothing. Mm. There's, there, there's absolutely no redeeming anybody in that play. Mm. Yeah. So if you want a fun night at the theatre, come see Time of Athens. <laughs> now, another one we looked at, I, I love going through through this list, is Coriolanus. And, oh, yes. uh, and that's one that a number of us hadn't looked at for a while as well, but also seems to be very pertinent for today. I think we need to see a, a Coriolanus soon, don't you? Oh, it, it was a, a, a revelation reading it. Mm. 
Um, I'd read it oh, 30 years ago, maybe, yes. and I'd seen two productions of it. Oh, and I also saw an all-female production in Melbourne a couple of years ago right. um, with Alyssa Armstrong's company. Uh, and so I thought, you know, it was a good play, but reading it, wow. Mm, mm. You know, first of all, it zips along. Yes. It's a political intrigue that really, it's a thriller, mm, really keeps mm. you going. The characterizations are fascinating. Um, but the biggest thing, I think, for all of us was how Shakespeare deals with the way the mob can be manipulated. Right, right. And right now, post the Capitol riots, mm. um, the idea of demagogue, demagogues being able to stir up the crowds and the different potentialities of so-called patriotism, mm. I mean, that makes the play incredibly relevant. I, I do think, I mean, I always think it's it's um, can be reductive to try to set it in a particular period. Okay. So yeah. you don't want a big orange baby with a comb over yes. in the play, <laughs> but the, it's so apparent, the resonances are so apparent that you you just need to stage it. Yeah, you just, you just stage it and people will make those connections themselves. I'm a strong believer in that, that the audience has to has to bring something to the table. They have yeah. to do the work of interpretation and, and, and finding out what it is in their world that connects with the, the piece they're watching. And that's what makes it a satisfying night at the theatre, because yeah. otherwise you just read the news. Well, there you go, exactly. Another play we looked at was Henry VI Part Two, along those uh, along similar themes, where we see a sort of Trumpist revolution happening under under Jack Cade, where he wants to wipe out anyone who can even read or write, and that seemed to me to be extraordinarily modern. It was basically the Capitol riots written down by Shakespeare four hundred years ago. That's right, but also some of what he says is. Um a fascinating starting point for socialism, communism, fascism. Mm. Um, you know, it's that it's. The, the, I've always, as, as I studied history as a kid, I always find it fascinating that uh, the Nazis were national socialists. Yes, right. Even right. though they're fascists, mm, mm. and that combination of ideologies is exactly what we see in, in John Cade, and it, it's it's revolutionary. Mm. I mean, obviously he's wanting a revolution, but when you read it dramaturgically mm. in terms of theatre, it's revolutionary. Yeah, and the way that he's used by York, um, the Duke of York, uh, the nobility, to kind of foment unrest so that then York can come in and take over the crown is kind of extraordinary. And also shows the the disdain that leaders, and this is going back to Coriolanus as well, the disdain that leaders can have for the populations that they lead. Absolutely, just using them using them as cannon fodder yes. or as um, uh, trumped-up support mm. to get political advantage. And, of course, uh, we, we couldn't spend uh, the month without looking at the Scottish play, and this is a play that you know very, very well, uh, most recently having appeared in the Melbourne Theatre Company blockbuster production <laughs> was, uh, wasn't in, it? <laughs> in Melbourne. What was that experience like, working in a production that was just, had so many moving parts, was, was huge? It really was. Um, it's uh, what. Well, this goes back to what you're saying about there being no right or wrong production. Right. And I've seen many uh, Maccas over the years, and I've played Lady M when I was probably too young, okay. unfortunately, okay. Um, which is really interesting. You know, having very, very young, um, uh, you know, very young Lady Macbeth. Um, I was a witch in this, and it was. First of all, it was great fun, mm. but it, for an actor, it was very, very much an exercise in logistics and not falling off the really large um, 
Oh, I've just what was the word. The revolve? Was there a revolve? The revolve, yeah. yes. I was thinking circle. That's not right. <laughs> there was a massive revolve mm. and the set was almost entirely black and you're going into black wings yes. and you have no idea at all where you're <laughs> going to end up. Um, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was a very populous production for all the right reasons. Mm. You know, mm. it, uh, I know qu- quite a few teenagers who were brought to Shakespeare through that production. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Um, particularly boys, mm, mm. you know, because there was a lot of running around with exploding cars and machine guns, yes. and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other ways to approach this play as well, um, but it did what it said on the box, which is to bring an entirely new audience to Shakespeare. And there was a big audience, wasn't there? I mean, it, was, oh, it was huge. Yeah. We were packed every night. Yeah. Uh, and we had to extend the season by several weeks. Mm. Um, it was a lot of fun being on stage with Rob Menzies, who has played Macbeth twice, I yeah, think. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And maybe Malcolm or Macduff. And then I'd played Lady M. Uh, and then the um, Dan Spielman, who's playing Macduff, had played Macbeth for Bell. So you had a lot of knowledge of the play. Mm. Um and it, it, it does some interesting things to you. Uh, no actor should ever give advice to another actor. Okay. That is completely, <laughs> totally not the done thing. Sure. Unless it's asked for. Unless, yeah. 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 Um, so what happens to us who've been in different productions, watching other actors tackle the same plays, the, the, the lines going through your head because they're still there from 20 years mm, ago, mm. Um, it means that you, you discover new things. You okay. hear new things. Mm. Um, I have to say that, the which probably wasn't the most satisfying part I've ever played, right. but it was still a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Jane, it's been so wonderful talking to you today. Uh, now, just before we wrap it up, I've got this segment called The Final Five. Got five quick questions for you. Need five quick answers. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, here we go. Number one, as an actor, Jane, would you rather be the lover, the villain or the fool? Villain, no question. Every time. <laughs> Every time. Jane, what is your most underrated Shakespeare play? Uh, Cymbeline. I love Cymbeline. I played Imogen many years ago when I was a young actor. Mm. Just loved it. It's why, great. why is that not put on more often? Cymbeline. I don't. I mean, it is bonkers. Yeah. It's a really bonkers play. It's a big sprawling cast too. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's about the cast, but it's a lot of fun. Who is your favourite actor you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with already? Oh, well, um, in Australia, it'd be Kate Mulvaney. Oh, Kate. Oh, blown... you haven't worked with Kate. Oh. No, I was blown away by Richard III. Mm. In fact, I think I might just have sent a text to Pete that night saying, bloody marvellous, and please can we do something, Great. Kate, together. <laughs> yeah. um, no, she's she's fantastic. In the UK, um, I, uh, I pretty much have worked with all the people I wanted to. What is the dream Shakespeare role, Jane, that you'd love to play you haven't played yet? What's on your list? I haven't played. Well, this is hard because I have done about 16 Shakespeare's. Yes. So I have played a lot that were on my bucket list. Mm. Always wanted to play Isabella in Love, um, Measure for Measure, Measure, but I'm mm. too old now. Then wanted to play Hermione in Winter's Tale, but I'm too old now. So I think I better start looking to the male parts okay. if I'm going to be satisfied. <laughs> um, so, look, I'm going to say Gloucester in King Lear. And finally, if you weren't in the performing arts, what would you be doing? I was voted at my high school as girl most likely to become a librarian. Oh, good. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Jane, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thanks, Jim. It's been great. 
Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.